0: Thank you.
1: Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, here with my co-host Carrie Plitz. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Octavia.
2: For this minisode, we are doing something a little different. It is sponsored by publisher Picador, who this year have launched a new list of contemporary classics called the Picador Collection to coincide with their 50th anniversary year. With the aim of bringing seminal titles to a new generation of readers, the Picador collection combines the gravitas of a modern classics list with the eccentric, boundary-pushing spirit of cult paperback publishing. The first titles on the list by incredible writers, incredible writers, including Bret Easton Ellis, Hanya Yanagihara, Cormac McCarthy, V.S. Naipaul. Jamaica Kincaid, Jackie Kay, and Alan Hollinghurst are books that inspire devotion, each of which have spent many years being eagerly pressed into people's hands. I have definitely pressed many of these books into people's hands. Into my
1: hands, even. (laughs) Yes, into your hands. It's true. (laughs) To celebrate the collection, we've got a really exciting show lined up. First, we're going to be interviewing the inimitable Antiguan American writer, Jamaica Kincaid, who has five books featured on this list. And then we're going to talk to Stu Wilson, who's from the art department at Picador. The Picador collection titles all have a fresh new look, designed by Katie Took, and Stu will be telling us about the work that went into designing the series, but also talk about the fascinating process of cover design more generally. So if you've ever wondered what goes behind the covers by which you are not supposed to judge your books, (laughs) listen (laughs) up and you'll find out. Yeah.
2: And not only that, we're really excited that along with Picador, we're going to be running a competition. My favorite thing, (laughs) Octavia. (laughs) Five lucky listeners will win a sturdy and now very rare literary friction tote, along with each of our two favorite titles from the Picador collection, plus one of Jamaica's books, which means five books in total in each bag. So if you want to find out which are my favorites and which are Octavia's, see if you can guess, check out Picador socials, which is at Picador Books on Twitter and Instagram, and also our socials. And we will also link to everything in the show notes for more information.
1: That's right. And the competition is now live as you are listening to this. It will be open until the 6th of October. So you've got a two-week window to enter. So get on it.
2: Yeah. And, and you have two weeks to guess what our favorite book. is. That's are. right. And I think it will be very hard. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but before we get started with the show, Octavia, do you want to introduce Jamaica Kincaid? I absolutely do. Jamaica Kincaid is an award-winning Antiguan American writer, as well as an essayist, gardening writer, and professor of African and African-American studies in residence at Harvard University. Jamaica was a New yorker staff writer for over 20 years, writing the Talk of the Town column and was the recipient of the 2022 Paris Review's Annual Lifetime Achievement Award. The author of more than a dozen books, her essays, stories and novels offer evocative portrayals of the mother-daughter relationship, the life of making art and the legacy of colonialism. Jamaica's work has been compared to that of Toni Morrison and Virginia Woolf, praise from Susan Sontag, Joyce Carol Oates, and Salman Rushdie to name just a few.
2: This year, Picador will reissue five of her books as part of the Picador collection. At the Bottom of the River, a collection of short stories published in the magazines The New Yorker and the Paris Review between 1978 and 1982, Among Flowers, a 2005 memoir of a journey she made to the Himalayas, and the novels Annie John, Lucy, and the Autobiography of My Mother from 1985, 1990, and 1996, respectively. Five more will be re-released next year. We'll be talking to Jamaica about At the Bottom of the River and Annie John primarily, but also her life in literature and as a writer.
1: So stay tuned for our conversations with Jamaica and with Stu Wilson from the Picador Art Department. It's going to be a fun show.
2: Jamaica Kincaid, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. So we've asked you to start with a reading from
3: your work. Do you mind setting it up for us? Ah, well, I'm going to read the first part of seven parts, really. I think it's seven parts of a story called My Mother. And I like this story, I think, or I like thinking about it because It's in seven parts, seven paragraphs, and they all relate to each other, though it's not obvious, except it's the theme of the mother. It's called My Mother. Immediately on wishing my mother dead and seeing the pain it caused her, I was sorry and cried so many tears that all the earth around me was drenched, standing before my mother. I begged her forgiveness and I begged so earnestly that she took pity on me, kissing my face and placing my head on her bosom to rest. Placing her arms around me, she drew my head closer and closer to her bosom until finally I suffocated. I lay on her bosom, breathless, for a time uncountable, until one day, for a reason she has kept to herself, she shook me out and stood me under a tree, and I started to breathe again. I cast a sharp glance at her and said to myself, so. Instantly, I grew my own bosoms, small mounds at first, leaving a small soft place between them, where, if ever necessary, I could rest my own head. Between my mother and me now were the tears I had cried, and I gathered up some stones and banked them in so that they formed a small pond. The water in the pond was thick and black and poisonous, so that only unnameable invertebrates could live in it. My mother and I now watched each other carefully always making sure to shower the other with words and deeds of love and affection.
2: I love that. Do you feel that you find new resonances in your work when you read it aloud?
3: Well, first of all, I never read my own writing once I'm finished with it. I even have trouble editing it. It's been such a deep thing, really unearthing some things that I have a lot of trouble going back over them. So I usually don't read anything I've written unless what just happened now you asked me. But sometimes when I am reading it, i say to myself, as I'm reading it, I can't believe I wrote that. Wow, that's, where was I? You know, sometimes I read something by a writer I admire and I think, oh, that's so wonderful. How did they do that? Not too often, sometimes when I'm reading out loud my own work, I have to suppress the feeling of, wow, I really wrote that. That's really interesting. So I suppose resonance, but it's more vanity. I'm a very vain person, really, which is why I stay away from myself. (laughs) I will become (laughs) my own icon, (laughs) my own idol (laughs) and worship myself. Oh, that's very dangerous. <laughs> I don't kind of love the idea of one's own icon being one's younger
1: voice. Yeah, but like the time traveling of it is kind of fabulous. My own influence. Yeah.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you obviously, after At the Bottom of the River, this collection that that story, my mother, was first published in, you went on to write many, many books. And five of these are now being reissued by Picador. How does it feel for that to be happening? How does it feel for that old version of your writerly voice to now be about to reach a whole new audience all this time later?
3: Oh gosh, well, you know, I am 73 years of age and I forget that I'm an old woman or no, I'm I'm regarded as an old woman. I mean, people get up and give me their seats and on the bus when i used to take the bus now i never go anywhere but they haven't yet said i should board first you know how they like to board children and the infirm and the elderly first on airplanes mm-hmm. <laughs> well they haven't yet looked at me and said you um <laughs> And that is the one time I really would be glad for that, <laughs> um, but I tend to forget that I am you know seventy something, so I forget you know that i'm that these things were written when I was young. I think the thing I like the most about the new books are the covers, which I think are so fabulous, especially the one where the girl is holding a bouquet to give to her mother, who has no head. Mm. My writing, you know, doesn't really have any errors. There's no the young Jamaica, the middle Jamaica. It's all one thing I've been interested in. I think as a child reader, as a child in school, my favorite subjects were history, geography, and botany. And lo and behold, they are the... Most significant things in my writing. I am not a person who writes about contemporary things because I don't think there is anything contemporary. For instance, you said you read Annie John. Now, I wrote that primarily about my mother and my childhood, my growing up, but really it's another aspect, another layer of it, for instance, if to use a geological metaphor, another layer of the crust would be, it's a description of a a relationship between the colony and the colonizer. Mm. Uh, The mother becomes a mother country and the child becomes a colony. And in fact, growing up, our childhood I would say, I can speak for the Anglophone Caribbean of my time, was very much based on that relationship of power in the parents and rigid control over the life of the powerless little child and um, a lot of cruelty inflicted on us children. Then we grew up and Repeated and uh, even in our political structures, you know, we grew up, became independent, and repeated the corruption that ruled us. All of these little independent countries are just full of corrupt people. It's the one thing we learned from the mother, from the center, is how to steal legitimately and. To make the illegitimate legitimate.
2: Yeah, I, I want to. I've left you breathless. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's
2: a good feeling, isn't it? <laughs> um, I want to come back to Annie John, but first, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your life as a writer, and and actually, one of the first things I wanted to to ask you about was related to that colonial idea a little bit. So you've spoken about how growing up in Antigua, you're a big reader. And you spoke about your your favorite subjects, but I'm so interested in what kind of writing you were exposed to and what you loved in your youth, because reading Annie John What really comes through in that book is the colonial education that Annie receives in in the Caribbean, which is so shaped by British texts and British ideas. And I was wondering if that closely reflected your own experiences as well.
3: Oh, God, yes. I knew an awful lot about Roman Britain. Well, one thing, I used to know the monarchs in succession you had to know it or you couldn't pass. You'd fail. We were told about, of course, the discovery of the West Indies, but it was very clever. You know, it must have been written by one of those horrible people in the overseas office um, who went to Eton and Oxford and those places, but actually quite nice places, just turn out horrible people. Um <laughs> But the history of the West Indies was Columbus, and then there are always these battles that took place somewhere far away from the West Indies that would, in the treaty of something, Dominica and Saint Lucia, this is just a rough example, would be ceded to the British because they were French before. So I had a pretty uh, good idea of uh, the history of the West Indies As it took place in Great Britain. (laughs) And, you know, until 1834, I think a West Indian was a white person. I don't think people understand that. And how crucial that distinction eventually became. I mean, it's the plot of Jane Eyre, you know, Mr. Rochester's first wife. You know, what's wrong with her is that she's white, but she grew up among black people. And that was a distinction. Anyway, so you asked me about my education. Yes. And so my mother was very political. So quite young, I began to make these connections, you know, between things. So I would have, it's um, quite true that I did wonder about why we were singing a song about longing to see the white cliffs of Dover. None of us had ever seen. None of the black people in the in our Wesleyan Methodist church had ever seen the White Cliffs of Dover. That you might as well have said when I see the red <laughs> earth of Mars or something. We felt we were British or we were English, but not quite. You know, we knew we weren't quite. It was as if we'd done something sort of slightly wrong, and we would never really be this people we were singing of and and worshipping, but we were quite pleased to be associated with them.
1: When you mentioned earlier that the, the mother and daughter relationship in Annie John, that there is a kind of, well, one of the things I found so compelling about that relationship is this mixture of a very ardent love and a kind of fury. And when you described it as being partly an allegory for the Daughter going off to be like the colony, and the mother, the motherland. Mm -hmm. It Mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense that there's that that strange dual relationship, but also on a simply kind of maternal to to daughter level. I related to it very strongly.
3: (laughs) Well, it's one of the things that's so frustrating to me that people didn't see the uh, right away. I think maybe perhaps more beginning to see the underlying the double theme. In it, and it's it's one of those dilemmas for us colonized people, you know, that we have this um, admiration, love, and so on for the people who were very cruel to us. But it doesn't go one way. I've become very interested in what, on the influence our presence, the colonized had. On the colonizer. I've become very interested in it, in how it changed um, their world and how it increased uh, their cruelty to each other. One thing fascinated me when I started to go to England and started to become interested in, all oh, right, Great Britain, the UK, when I was in my 20s and I be- was just, you know, becoming familiar with the world. You know, I was sent away to be a servant by my family. But when I I got out of that situation and began to look at the world, and one of the things, of course, I began to look at was um, the United Kingdom. And I was really surprised at how poor ordinary people were, how deprived of things that ordinary Americans had, you know, a lot of, especially in the 50s when I was growing up. Americans had cars, they had washing machines, they had indoor plumbing, well, white ones anyway. And I was just shocked at how scarce prosperity was among working people in England. And it occurred to me even then that, as usual, it all goes to the 1%. I thought everyone would have more or less something that looked like Pemberley. (laughs) didn't realize it was only one person who got Pemberley and the other people had to take care of it. And then it dawned on me, oh, no wonder they went to these places where I am. Because if you go to Antigua, if you're just a working person in England and you go to Antigua, you can sort of live like you're in Pemberley.
2: Let's talk more about Annie John, which was your first novel um, Mm -hmm. published in 1985. And we just before we got on this call, Octavia and I were were talking about how much we loved reading this novel. And I think one of the things that we both loved about reading the novel is because Annie John is such a wonderful <laughs> character, which in some ways her kind of trials and tribulations are so ordinary. You know, it's about her relationship with her mother and her friendships and and yet she's so unique, and she's so complex, and she just springs off the page and she has all of these contradictions. she does well in school, she rebels uh she's filled with disgust, but also loves sometimes for the same people at different times <laughs> and I wonder if you could just talk about Annie, how did she come to you you know what do, What does she mean for you as as a character?
3: oh gosh uh i I once want jokingly said to someone something very true, that my mother wrote my life. And I think that the character, uh, Annie John, was so formed by my mother's... uh, because I was her only child. And I think I was the first child she allowed to be born. I think she had probably two or three pregnancies before me, and she didn't allow them. And I say that with complete support of her. She did not want to have children, and she did not have them. But for some reason, she would always tell me about my life. For instance, before I was even out of her stomach. So I have a a white spot on my hip, just, just like a white spot my brown skin. And she would always say to me that, oh, that's because when I was pregnant with you, I craved milk. And that's what that's for. And she would tell me everything about my body. We both had a mole in the same place on our neck. And it turns out my daughter has it too. Just a little black mole in the same spot. She taught me to read. And uh, from books she was reading, but taught me to read without telling me there was an alphabet. So she would tell me a word as I can remember it. And as suddenly I just knew how all the words worked and they would just sort of leap up at me. But clearly, you know, in my childish imagination or whatever you want to call it, I just imagined she fed me the words and I knew how they worked because they came from her. So I have this sense of my life, I suppose, mythical uh, in a way. And I, I am very attracted to the mythic. Yeah, so I suspect the book must have come out of a longing for paradise, I I thought I grew up in and uh not only a lot, and I'm wondering about it, because the truth is you can never return to paradise. There's always that archangel with his flaming swords guarding the the gates, but it must have you know come out of things like longing for something a, a, a true paradise it was really amazing this this woman who would carry me everywhere, who would chew i I hated to eat and I'm sure now it would be regarded as an eating problem, but I wouldn't eat unless she chewed my food for me. And she would dutifully chew up my food and and then give it to me out of her mouth. And I thought, oh, it's the most delicious thing. Um, we just had this extraordinary, now I see intimacy, which I didn't want to end. And then it did end with my brother's birth. It's interesting listening to you describe that intimacy
1: and as you say, paradise broken, because the other thing that both Carrie and I were really drawn to were the portrayals of Annie's intense friendships with Gwen and then the red girl. And again, they felt they felt very relatable and also kind of fantastical, but just the intensity of feeling at that stage of life, you render it so vividly and, and realistically. But I wonder if if you think that there is something that is extra kind of fertile in the connections we make when we're in that stage of kind of prepubescent into kind of puberty, early teenage
0: life?
3: I don't know. I don't want to, to uh, generalize. I had that. Um, I did have th- those relationships I described really were were true. But again, I may I have been modeling myself. My mother had very strong relationships with, other women. My mother was very, uh, she sort of didn't like to admit it, but she practiced obia and there were always these people who seemed jealous of her and would do s- things to us. And so she had a, a lot of friendships with other women and they would discuss things. So I, I saw that seemed quite natural to me to have those strong friendships. And, and when I had them, these intense friendships, she would always discourage them because she always thought that the people we lived next to us, our neighbors, that they were not really the right people. But she had these friendships with these women, and I might have modeled those friendships I had on her too. Speaking
2: more generally about feeling, One of the things I really like about your writing is that it's very attuned to feeling. I mean, in in Annie John, for instance, you know, she speaks so movingly about unhappiness, but there's also joy and obsession and disgust. And is that important to you to really capture and to take seriously feeling in your writing? Is that something you think about when you sit down to to write a story?
3: I don't know how to tell you this, but When I sit down to write, I don't have any, I don't really have, oh dear, I'm not, I just am not that kind of writer. I don't have any particular, uh, and I write so much out of real things, though also imagined. But it is hard to invent a feeling for certain things I write about. I can't invent a strong feeling for my friend who is the red girl, you know, admiring that she didn't wash all the time. <laughs> I can't um that was really true, but you know, because I had to wash all the time.
2: You know, we interview a lot of authors on the show. And I really get the sense some are so cerebral. They have such a clear idea of what they want to be writing about and the kind of themes they want to be writing about. And then there are other writers who are just writing and they kind of can't describe where things come from or why or what they want to do. It sounds like maybe you're the latter.
3: I think so. I'm so jealous of people who know what they're doing when they start to write because I don't at all. You know, I mean, I grew up with books, but I didn't grow up with writers. I actually thought that people didn't write literature anymore after Kipling because we were never taught anything. I never read a book or knew of a book that were of literature that was written in the 20th century until I was 19 years of age. And the household in in which I worked, the uh, woman of the house gave me the second sex and then Virginia Woolf because she was a feminist. I have said this many times as when I was seven years of age, I had to, as a punishment for something I'd done wrong in class, I had to copy books one and two of Paradise Lost. And I was seven years of age and it left a, an impression which sometimes you can see in my work. I wrote a book called Lucy because of Lucifer. So I was given Jane Eyre to read again as a punishment to keep me quiet. And my French teacher said, here, read this. That's when I began my impersonation of a writer because I would pretend I was a writer. And I would pretend I was not only the author of Jane Eyre, but I would pretend I was Jane Eyre too. <laughs> so, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, that was my, my lit- literary exposure. And I'm sort of glad in some way because sometimes I think when I see my students reading a lot of contemporary literature, I want to tell them, no, read the things that came before, read the things that makes the writer you're reading right. So you can understand something. Oh, most of contemporary literature is so shallow anyway. But I'm sure my books are shallow too. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wonder
1: if, if you can, maybe it's impossible to pinpoint, but as you just said, sort of remembering, impersonating being a writer, do you remember when you felt you had become a writer, when you made that transition from reader to writer?
3: Oh, yes. Um, yes, I was in, at Franconia College in early 1970. And I actually w- was studying photography. I thought I would take pictures. And uh, I used to write out the pictures. And then one day in my film class, I saw a movie called La Jetée. I thought, oh my God, that's what is this? And then I saw Oh, I know. <laughs> um, do I have it here? Sometimes I have it close by. A book of short stories by Alain Rogrier. Grier. Uh, oh my God, it's right here. I can't believe this. <laughs> it's called, oh, this is so funny. Magic. It's called, yeah, it really is. It's called Snapshots. Good grief. Yes, here it is, translated by someone named Bruce Morissette. And I read this book, Snapshots, and really, I read it. And then I thought, oh, I'm a writer. And I left Franconia College at the end uh, of August instead of beginning the new semester, the new year got into this little old car, drove it, stayed to New York, parked it somewhere, stayed on people's couches, and just said, I'm a writer, and started to write. And no one ever said, no, you are not. I should also not forget to say that the people I knew when I first said I was a writer and started to write were almost, if there were 100 of them, 99% of them were gay men, And um, those were my friends. And they somehow I fell into uh, this group of really talk about marginalized. And they were, there was only one who was black, the others were white, but I just fell in with them. And um, they said, of course. And we all did things together. And um, I started to write. I wrote for the Village Voice, I wrote for a little magazine called Ingenue, that was really fortunate. I just went there and said, oh, I'd like to interview Gloria Steinem about what, she's like, what she was like when she was the reader, the age of the reader of your magazine. And they thought that was a good idea. And I didn't know Gloria Steinem, but I just rang up Ms. Magazine and said, I'd like to interview Gloria Steinem. And uh, Gloria Steinem said, yes, I interviewed her. I wrote the story. It was a success and they turned it into a series. So that was my first foray into writing. I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know the kind of writer I wanted to be. I, I was quite ignorant of a lot of things. And I think sometimes on purpose, sometimes not. I just did everything that you shouldn't do. You know, I would, someone said, would you like to meet the editor of The New Yorker? I had no idea who the editor of The New Yorker was. I said, yes, I met the editor of The New Yorker. And he asked me to write some, said, well, oh, actually what he said was, you should give it a try. I gave it a try. He published what I wrote. And actually, that was the moment, that particular incident of writing was the moment I understood who I could be as a writer. You know that thing they call voice. Mm. I think I I fell on it right in that moment. I wrote for the the first piece for Mister Sean. I was thinking about
2: your voice while I was reading Annie John, and there's this part when when Annie describes a bunch of girls in her class that she finds to be dull. um, And she says, (laughs) they certainly didn't think that the world was a strange place to be caught living in. And I loved that. And also it made me think of the way that you write, which is, it's, it's a kind of acknowledgement of the kind of beauty and strangeness of the world. And I, and I wonder if you feel that way, if you feel that you're, you know, the world is a strange place to be caught living in, and that's one of the things you want to capture when you're writing.
3: Oh, my God, <laughs> do I ever feel that. I mean, I've always felt the felt that life was very strange and that we were just, we humans were just incapable of really, you know, all our senses are really like, they're the senses of something that lived a billion years ago or something. I've always found that strange. I've always found life strange. In fact, it was one of the things in a way that was alienating to my friends in my real life in school, when I wasn't being, you know, the most wonderful girl in the class. Um, I I found life uh very yeah, very strange. But nobody else did, so I was just always alone with these thoughts. Even now, you know, yeah, it's strange. It's really strange. But, you know, then there's coffee. <laughs> yeah, then there's coffee. And and also gardening. I mean,
1: you're an avid gardener, and, and you said at the beginning mm-hmm. of this conversation, botany has always been a real fascination of yours. I wonder, you know, gardening can obviously be such a creative, expressive Thing to do, but also I see gardens as full of that kind of strangeness. I mean, slugs and snails mm-hmm. and all kinds of things. I wonder if you feel the same way.
3: Oh, yes, but um oh, not so the snugs and say Oh, this morning I actually resisted just crushing a snail. I thought, <laughs> you were oh, in that well, case. <laughs> yes, I, for some reason I thought, well, it's the end of the, uh, all right, go on and be. A- eat the leaves of my hostas, but my gardening, it's become a form, or it always was a form of writing because, oh, you don't want to get me started in into the gardening. For instance, I, I could wonder from now until dawn tomorrow, why the, I don't know what to call you all anymore, English people were so much more interested in the vegetable kingdom than the Spaniards who were always interested in the mineral kingdom. And that's how they built an empire. But the British imperialism a lot was more concentrated in fruits and vegetables and flowers and, you know, tobacco, cotton... So I, when I, how I came to gardening was through, um, this observing the imperial enterprise, the, the colonial, uh, enterprise, you know, so I would come across like Joseph Banks introduced tea to India. Apparently Indians didn't drink tea. They drank bush tea and so on. But the thing we call tea, you know, Um, Camellia sinensis comes from China, and he introduced it to Indians and introduced it to England. People would say English breakfast tea. There is no tea in England or English chocolate. There is no chocolate tree. (laughs) And so I, I garden with that in mind. I grow cotton every year. And I never get anything but flowers because I live in Vermont and the season is too short to produce actual cotton. But I just love growing it because it's a beautiful plant, has beautiful hollyhock-like flowers, but just, you know, dazzling, kind of shimmering pinks and yellows. And so there is the beauty and all that. And then there is that other, you know, side of it. So that's the kind of thing that happens to me in the garden.
2: On that note, Jamaica Kincaid, thank you so much for being with
3: us here today. Thank you. I hope I've thoroughly bored you now. (laughs) You'll never do
1: this (laughs) again. We promised to leave you alone, but but not because you bored us. (laughs) But thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to listen to you.
2: Next up, we have Stu Wilson, Picador's art director with over 20 years experience in book design, who's here to talk about the new covers he and designer Katie Took came up with
1: for the Picador collection. Octavia, can you tell us a bit more about Stu before we get started? I sure can. Since joining Picador after a career in the music industry, Stu has worked with some of the most iconic names and renowned writers on the Picador list. Such as Kay Tempest, PJ Harvey, and Olivia Lang. He was awarded a DNAD Award for Book Design in 2018 for Pan's 70th anniversary reissues, The Pan 70s, and designed the cover for 2020 Booker Prize winner Shaggy Bane by Douglas Stewart, the first Booker win for Picador in 15 years.
2: Do thank you so much for being here with us today.
0: You're more than welcome. Thank you.
2: So I want to start by talking about the Picador collection. The titles in this collection have a really unique look. And maybe you could just start by describing them so that our listeners have a sense of what they look like. I realize that a podcast is maybe not the best medium in the world for talking about book design.
0: <laughs> so essentially, they're a set of a baker's dozen of 13 and they have a unifying look that carries its kind of own signifying branding um, with these slices top and bottom, which I'll come on to later, and consistent typography in different colours with contemporary images and illustrations that suited to the book, um, full bleed across the cover, which is also quite important. We wanted them to have have a kind of unifying look, because they are a collection, obviously, but also have their own individuality, because a lot of them are perceived classics, some of them are new, some of them are more contemporary, and they also cover the span of Picador's lifetime.
1: As you say, there's such different books, and I'm fascinated by design process. Like, how did you settle on this kind of language and how many different designs did you consider was it a really long process like imagining you at a table with hundreds of images strewn around you like a mad professor
0: <laughs> yeah in that um in that way of, of just considering every single option for every single cover i mean some some things are kind of relatively straightforward in the process if i talk about little life briefly hanya was very keen on that image it had been used on the American version of the publication, and she wanted it for our British version, but that didn't happen in a way. So, actually, this was an opportunity to revisit that. So, that conversation became a relatively short process because we knew exactly what we wanted to do. But then, something, you know, a little bit more contemporary like Room, you have to go through a lot of iterations on how do we actually display this in a classic sense but also how does it fit within the collection parameters as well?
1: You mentioned before that you commissioned some new illustrations for some of the covers, which is such an exciting thought. Do you have an example of like a particular one you'd like to talk about that was
0: a new commission? Well, I can talk about, I was going to talk about four. Brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Which would probably mean I'll go on forever. But it just means that it kind of shows the difference in the way that we were thinking. The first one actually is Middle Passage because it's an older novel and... Who's the author of Middle Passage? So that's by Charles Johnson and it was winner of the National Book Award in 1990 and so it goes to show its age and it it had a very, a very old-fashioned cover to it and it was essentially a book about slave ships and a book about one of the passengers who is fought to, juggles himself, juggles loyalties between the ship's crew and the enslaved passengers. It just felt like it had a contemporary edge to the novel and we wanted to make sure that the illustration was up to date and it kind of felt more apt for the book. Um, and it's just part of uh, part of an ongoing conversation that made it a lot more contemporary, and that made it a lot easier to commission and find an illustrator that we wanted to use and also make it look bright, colourful, beautiful and have a vibrancy to it that it wouldn't necessarily had when it was first published in 1990. Who um, Who did the
1: illustration?
0: A man called Kingsley, and he works. Oh, he works across a lot of things. He's done a lot of books. Um, he's done a lot of film posters, and he's worked for things like the New Yorker, Guardian Weekly, and yeah, he was absolutely brilliant. And the way that he works is he fits. He fits faces inside of shapes inside of faces, so it all becomes part of a kind of overall context. And also, you know, is a person of color, and we really wanted a person of color to be able to do this in a certain way and a certain vibrancy that also gave it a seriousness as well. And he very much has that. Alice Patulo, she is um, a wonderful contemporary illustrator, and her work we thought would, would suit somewhere in the collection. Katie was very good in commissioning her because, because she's got a very illustrative, painterly way of working and it suited very much suited a house for Mr. Biswals because that 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 needed to have the vibrant house the big colourful wonderful house and as a V.S. Naipaul book it also kind of talks to kind of contemporary culture as well and then the other the other two I was going to kind of quickly touch on well so you've been publicly shamed by John Ronson Yeah, by John Ronson and Room by Emma Donoghue. Because Katie and I both did those covers. Katie did Room and I did So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And they were very much of a case of, right, okay, we've got an opportunity here to do something slightly different and a a bit more kind of constructed. And it was one of those things that we were doing it in the middle of lockdown. And it's like, right, okay, how can we do this? So Katie bought the small figures for Room constructed a set to put them in and photographed them with the light coming from them. So those figures on the front of the cover are, what, about five centimetres high? So they're little die-cast figures. And it just felt like, because you were constructing a small box to put small figures in, it just felt like it was extremely claustrophobic thing to do. And that just felt like a really nice way of illustrating the way the book feels. And then so you've been publicly shamed I bought the keys from eBay all the different keys for the keyboard from eBay so it's got a it's got an emoji face made out of keys because a lot of the the book is about how we're perceived online and you know people's people's tweets and how they've been castigated for things that they've done in in an online world and about contemporary society today so I made it all up in my back room and photographed it with an old iPhone. So it kind of had the kind of lo-fi technology way of doing it.
2: We've just spoken to Jamaica Kincaid on this podcast. Have you?
0: Oh, marvellous.
2: Whose <laughs> books are, are part of this collection. And I wonder if you could speak specifically about how you arrived at the design for the covers for the books you're reissuing of hers in the collection.
0: So this is quite interesting because Katie had a whole selection of artists from extremely contemporary to reasonably conservative. And there was a big debate in-house here as to the direction that we wanted to go. A lot of people wanted to make them a lot younger and brighter and bolder, and some people didn't. So it, it was a, there was a very big ongoing conversation between a good five or six artists, and then when we came round round to actually speaking to Jamaica and her agent about it, she was very keen on this particular painter. That was that was kind of interesting because actually, actually, what this particular painter does is it shows a kind of a, a light and a warmth and a tone that still feels very engaging and very beautiful and it just has that that kind of vibrancy to it as well whereas a lot of the other things that we were looking at they felt too contemporary and too too bold whereas this just has this luminosity to it that just feels really positive.
1: Um, and what's the name of the artist?
0: So the artist is Huey Lee Smith, and We very much got in touch with their agent and used a lot from their archive because they were so suitable for each of the individual titles. I remember Jamaica herself and her agent being involved in the process with Katie and picking out the various ones that they thought would fit with each individual title. There was quite a lot of debate about that because we wanted to get the tone absolutely right.
1: It's kind of extraordinary when you look at them all. And listeners, I really suggest that you you have a Google so you can see them because it almost looks to me as if each painting was specifically designed for the book in question. You know, there's like Annie John, which is the story of this young girl and it's got a a sort of teenage girl looking out of the frame at us. Like It feels so perfect, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I feel like lately book covers have really upped their game generally, like across the industry. Oh,
0: very much so. Yeah,
1: yeah. Do you, what, why do you think that's happening now?
0: I, do, I just think that it's, there's a new vibrancy of the people that work in the industry. And you can tell by bookshops because they're so wonderfully curated in the way that they display all of our work, let's say our work as kind of designers across the industry, that it's just a pleasure to actually be in them. They're almost like mini art galleries in themselves. So it's wonderful to see.
2: Could you talk us through the process of designing a cover what are the steps that you take when you do that
0: there's a lot of steps and sometimes it's, it can depend on the book and sometimes they work to a very distinct tram line where you get a brief your response to the brief is thus you know you've shown them to the wider community of the company and they've picked a particular route and then that's approved by author agent and the company itself and away you go. But then some don't follow that path at all in the slightest. Some have a very organic process where you're in touch with the author and the editor and everybody thinks about the ideas. You all kind of, you know, pour over the novel and you'll pick out very distinct moments and then they're very much illustrated or designed or worked up so you can kind of have this ongoing conversation that evolves over over a long period of time.
2: Do you have an example of a cover you're really proud of?
0: Oh, loads. Um, <laughs> where to start? Oh, no, do, do you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll put Douglas Stewart in there because actually if you talk about the process of the way, the way that both Douglas Stewart's covers work, Young Mungo and Shuggy Bain, they're a very big collaborative process between – a very visually literate, wonderful author who really is into contemporary photography and art and being a fashion designer from years before, he has a very good eye for anything kind of contemporary culture. And to be able to work alongside him, with him, influence him, him influence me, is just a very big, good organic process. And then to get to the end of it where you've got You've got kind of results that that are very kind of bold and graphic in their way. it just makes for makes me feel extremely proud of them, particularly young Mungo in a way, you know having a kissing gay couple on the front is just brilliant I think
1: This might be a tricky question to answer, but what about some of your favorite book covers that you haven't designed? Are there any out there that you're like,
0: oh, I wish that was my work yeah i've got a I've got a kind of funny story I was. Thinking about on the train on the way in that my boss here James, he designed a book called The Information for Martin Amis, and oh, that's it. This is going back a long time. It's like mid nineties, and I remember looking at that when I was a student and thinking, just looking at it on bookshelves and just thinking that is just totally different to everything that's out there, and it's highly minimal. So basically, it's a cover that just has a typewriter eye with a red line that goes through it on a blue background
2: those are always the best covers aren't they the ones that that feel so different from everything else out there but are so striking
0: yeah i mean you could have literally you could have literally put that anywhere in any shop and because of its minimalism and because of its boldness it just stood away from everything else So yeah, I would have loved to have designed that. It would have been great.
1: (laughs) Well,
2: Stu Wilson, thank you so much for being with us here today and talking us through the fascinating process of getting a book cover out into the world.
0: Oh, you're more than welcome, more than welcome. Thank you.
1: That's all the time we have for today. Thank you to Jamaica Kincaid, Stu Wilson, Siobhan Slattery from Picador, and to Daphne Carnesis and George Miaris for editing.
2: Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also
1: get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. Don't forget to enter the competition. Check the show notes for all of the details there. And we'll be back soon for a show with Gabrielle Zevin, the author of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt, and this was Literary Friction.